Morrison's Mussolini moment and taxpayer-funded warmongers hide from scrutiny coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 19th of August 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, Morrison's multiple ministry takeover and implications for the future. And we'll talk about the small select group that are pushing us, Australia, putting us in the pathway of World War III, or at least a proxy war against China. Now, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and ring the notification bell and share this as widely as you can um, on social media and so forth. Make a comment below that always adds to uh, the circulation of the video. And Elisa, before we begin, just to uh, remind people what we announced last week, that on the 7th of September, uh, midday 7th of September, there will be a public forum in Parliament House on a postal bank which will be addressed by a former New Zealand Cabinet Minister, Matt Robson. Um, so we're building that um, as we speak to invite all the members of Parliament um, and staff and media and, and um, other interested stakeholders to come along and see a presentation on this. There'll be a lineup of politicians who'll speak in support of it. Um, it's being hosted by the Licensed Post Office Group um, and the Executive Director, uh, Angela Cramp, who's doing a lot of work towards it. Uh, so this will be a big, put, um, uh, you know, part of a big surge of, of uh, getting support for this concept. Because like I said, this is one that we can win. The best thing that the viewers who support this can do is take personal responsibility to stay in touch with your member of parliament. And if you've got, and if you can, get on the parliament website and look up the senators from your state and start contacting them as well. Identify yourself as a constituent and say you want them to support this policy. You can tell them about this event coming up. We'll put out a public notice um, very soon, but you, you have those dates midday uh, on Wednesday the 7th of September in Parliament House. You want them to attend You want or, or send their staff if they're too busy, um, but, but really encourage them to get engaged with this policy. They don't have to support it, but they need to understand it because there's a bill that's going to be introduced into Parliament as soon as possible and we need to make sure that you know this really becomes we, we what we've got to do is get this is this should be a non-controversial policy um except if you're a banker because mm. <laughs> it's a threat to you if you're a banker but the rest of for the rest of the body politic they should see okay here is a a service that we can establish which will benefit australia right and we need to um build the support mm. for that make it bipartisan across the board, that'll come from our, you guys engaging with them. Yeah, if you're sick of your local broken down infrastructure, get onto your councils. They should be pushing the MPs to do this as well and any other local leaders. But moving on to the first topic for the day, Morrison's Mussolini moment. Now we're going to talk about the national leader who implemented the designs of extreme liberal economists who took over the leadership of numerous ministries who hollowed out the public service and demolished the very institutions of government. And his uh, name was? Ben. <laughs> Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini. This he, is fascinating that he, we're gonna go, we'll go through the details, but the parallel and we're not doing this as just a symbolic parallel. There's an actual parallel here. But in terms of the methodology, it's very similar. People really need to reflect on um, uh, what we've seen, what we now know Scott Morrison was doing. There was, there was a power grab underway. The remaining question is for whom? Mm -hmm. He wasn't doing it for himself. Yeah. Mussolini worked for bankers and corporations. Morrison, we'll talk about that anyway. Yeah. But let's no. go through the details. Well, first of all, of course, Morrison, if people haven't heard, <laughs> <laughs> um, put himself into the ministries, took over the ministries or co-ran the ministries of health, finance, treasury, home affairs and resources. So well, you wouldn't five... say co-ran because it, what, so, okay. so he, he became a secret minister, second minister, minister in those portfolios. The only one who knew was, was Greg Hunt when he did that. Um, and the excuse was the powers of the health minister under a pandemic are, are, are awesome, are, are, you know, godlike, so mm. you need someone to share that. So Greg Hunt knew. Then he went on and kept doing it, and the other ministers 
didn't know, or at least they say they didn't know. Yeah, and the, of course, one of the experts in this area of cabinet government, Patrick Weller from Griffith University, as per the excuse you mentioned mm -hmm. that we needed to have the capability in case one of the ministers fell yep. ill or wasn't capable of doing the job, he said, he basically called that BS using that language. He said, contingencies such as ministers falling sick would never have posed a problem and presented only minutes of immediate work. In other words, you just swear someone else in at that moment if it happens. Um, and they have, you know, they have these, they have acting ministers all the time, mm, That's right, a, when someone goes overseas. Yeah, there's always an acting minister. Mm. What's the big deal? Uh, so Morrison took advantage, uh, this uh, Griffith University professor said, of the leeway in democratic conventions at the same time undermining the principles of cabinet government such as the fact that the authority resides in the minister. Yeah, the laws are, a lot of laws are written in such a way that they say the minister may determine, the minister shall determine, etc. right? And so the person who's sworn in as the minister has that power under the law. Remember the discussion of the Billawila family, the Sri Lankan family that went to, back to Billawila. That was entirely at the discretion of Alex Hawke, the Minister for Immigration, who also has godlike powers um, and who, frankly, didn't want to use his godlike powers to do something godly and help someone, mm. right? Um, even though he's a um, professing born-again Christian. Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's why you can't have two people that can say, no, I'm the minister, I'm yeah. going to do this. Mm -hmm. And, and if one of those to? is the Prime Minister... As in the case of the, the resources decision that where he overruled Keith Pitt, if the Prime Minister is that secret second minister, of course he's going to overrule the first minister mm. and, you know, who's really running the show. Now, Morrison, remember, not long before the election, um, his fellow Liberal Senator Conchetta Fiervanti-Wells described Morrison as an autocrat and a bully who has no moral compass. Um, and, of course, we've... We spent the last few years documenting um, his abusive role um, against the citizens of Australia, for instance, protecting the banks from the Royal Commission instead of protecting bank, bank victims, his treatment of people that interfered with him protecting the banks, such as Christine Holgate, for instance. Yeah. So we know that he had those kind of brutish tendencies. Well, and that's, that's where uh, we're starting to get to the answer of the question, for whom was he doing this? Yeah. Right, because it isn't just for his um, sake. Uh, he serves vested interests, right? And in our time um, engaging in Parliament, we've never seen someone quite like Morrison to shamelessly serve the banks. And the, that's why we use the example of the Royal Commission. And the Christine Holgate thing was just stunning. And I know one of the things that came out of that... Um, uh, inquiry and, and everything we did last year on the, to get the inquiry up is emerged sources um, really well informed sources told me that back in 2018 when Christine Holgate was negotiating with the banks to get them to um, pay extra money for the bank at post service or else it wouldn't have survived it was going to be shut down and she needed them to pay the extra money she was really concerned at what would happen if it, get, if it got shut down because 1,500 communities around Australia would lose all banking services if that happened. So she's every couple of weeks she's calling the banks and she's saying to them, you know, we need to do this deal. And Christine Holgate is a really, really lovely person, right? And so to her face, these bank executives, Shane Elliott, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Matt, Matt Common, Common uh, etc., saying, yeah, yeah, Christine, yeah, we'll do the deal, we'll do the deal. Behind her back, they were calling Scott Morrison, the treasurer at the time, to whinge about her, hmm. right? And this this definitely would have contributed in Scott Morrison's mind to his animosity towards Christine Holgate, and that all came out on the day. Now, <clears throat> I want before we go on on, on the details, I want to I want the viewer to reflect on something, Elisa, because. I think people are impressed at the way we turned around public opinion and what happened to Christine Holgate. Because at the time, it was like, oh, this fat cat executive is giving other fat cat executives gold watches. Who's going to defend that? And we knew something else was going on, and we defended it. Um, but at the time, no one else did, right? Even Anthony Albanese jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, she's got to go, etc. Reflect now on what 
Morris, what we now know about Morrison's behaviour proves about him. He was a power mad thug. Mm. We, we, like his, his own Karen Andrew, the Home Affairs Minister who, who he stood in behind secretly, said he's got to resign from Parliament, right? We and all of them sat there like cowards while he did that to Christine Holgate. And the Australian public, until we turned it around, shrugged and said, oh, yeah, she's a fat cat executive. No, no, no. We now know a power-mad politician was running amok in our government, right? And people, we had a sense of it and took it on. And a lot of the people in the public would have, you know, knew something was a bit awry about Scott Morrison, mm. but think, oh, well, that's politics. No, it's not. And you've got to take it on and you've got to stand up to it. And, you know, now now it's all starting to come out in the wash. And, you know, his treatment of women played into mm. a much bigger dynamic along with a number of other dynamics about his attitude to the people as opposed to subservience to the banks and bigger institutions that led to his political downfall. I'm laughing because when you said his attitude to the people, think about this. This is the biggest paradox of this. This man has never had more power. We've never had a politician in Australia with more power mm. than Scott Morrison had in the last three years. Never, ever, ever. More power in one person's hands. We've never had it. But it was in the hands of one person who took, no, no politician has ever taken less responsibility <laughs> than Scott Morrison for using that power to help people. Mm. I don't hold a hose, mate. Yeah. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'll wait two weeks before we do anything for Lismore, right? It's not my job. Um, it's not my job, mm. blah, blah, blah. What, a, what an absolute damn paradox. So he wasn't using it for the people, who was he using it for? Yeah. And by the way, you can go around Facebook right now. He's on a, um, we might be able to put some of this up, uh, producer. I'll talk to the guy behind the camera. Uh, no, he's going around Facebook right now. There's lots and lots of memes that f p Australians are putting up of painting, putting Scott Morrison's photo in a scene of someone else doing a job, oh, yeah. right? And Morrison is, get, is spending all night going around and making funny comments under those because he's making a joke about the whole thing. Oh, God. Um, anyway, okay. what, we want to make another point because, and this is important, uh, how did we get here? Yep. It, this, the capability for Morrison to do what he did and not get any pu pushback at all, yep. you know, that didn't happen overnight. So we've been on a slippery slope over time where the institutions, even the laws themselves that allow the people to self-govern you know, in what a democracy is supposed to be, have been eroded over time. So we want to go through a number of things point by point. Firstly are constitutional questions. And I'll just mention that um, when asked about this, the Governor-General Hurley said that the appointments that Morrison made were made consistently with Section 64 of the Constitution, which says that ministers may be appointed from among the Queen's Ministers of State for the Commonwealth and hold office at the pleasure of the Governor-General. <laughs> so that's a, a vague justification if I ever heard one. Yeah, so the, the Governor-General is the executive. Morrison, as a minister and the Prime Minister, yes, is part of that executive, but he's, on the, he's, the, he's from the legislature, the parliament that elects the executive council, right? But the difference in the two, you know, our system of checks and balances... Um, the legislative the legislature is supposed to check the power of the executive because they write the laws. The executive is supposed to be a balance against the power of the legislature. Um, he's just been able to do everything he wants, right? And um, the Governor-General just rubber-stamped it all. There's two specific things I'm sceptical about the, the, the Governor-General part in this, though. He's, he's claiming that he, you know, um, there's no reflection on him that this was all secret, right? Well, you know, there, he has a publication called the Gazette that he has to announce, make announcements in, right? That's his responsibility. He didn't do it. Something really dodgy there. And the other one is he claims he um, didn't inform the palace. This is really hard to believe because we... Um, Jenny Hocking is this constitutional expert who's done these, all these books about the Whitlam dismissal and dug into the archives and what the archives tell you, have shown you, not just in the case of Sir John Kerr and Whitlam, but the previous archives of all the Governor-Generals, they show how closely the Governor-General of Australia keeps the palace informed of everything. And here we are in a, 
you know, a biggest, the biggest national crisis for us for since World War II. That's what it was regarded as. Um, the Prime Minister is making extraordinary moves and he's not reporting back to the palace. I don't believe it for a second. We won't know for 30 years until yeah. those archives get released. Yeah. Now, taking a step down from constitutional law, we've seen the erosion of legislative accountability. And we've mm. written about this over the past couple of years, where you have the increasing incidence of what's called delegated legislation, where the legislation is not passed by the parliament, but is just declared by the minister for that department or by the Governor-General, if yeah. in an extreme case that can happen. Um, now, mostly such legislation can be disallowed within 15 days by a vote of the Parliament. However, there's an increasing incidence of exemptions from disallowance where they put a clause in there saying this can't be disallowed because it's this, exempt. And didn't this go up? Like the, the use of this went up massively during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, from recent a recent um, inquiry into this, which reported in February 2021, which was overseen by Labor Senator Kim Carr, reported that nearly half of all legislation is now delegated legislation. I mean, that's stunning. And about 20% of it was exempt from disallowance. So, the, so, so what that means is the Minister or the Governor-General, it, it's in the legislation that... The way that this law will work is the minister gets to make all these decisions. Mm -hmm. And like you said, normally with delegated legislation, there's a disallowance process. So the parliament can say, hang on, this decision the minister's made, which has the effect of law, we don't like, we're going to overrule it. Mm. But they put in these laws, no, no, this is exempt, this is exempt, this is exempt. So, that, so think about this, an increasing use of this in the pandemic, making it um, un undisallowable by parliament, and the, the one man, the Prime Minister, mm -hmm. has admitted that those are the departments he targeted to put himself in as a second secret minister. So he would have those undisallowable delegated powers. Mm -hmm. Now, and the other thing that this committee inquiry made clear was that in 1970, there were only three kinds of legislative instruments. <clears throat> but by the 1990s, there were over 100. And this also includes things that they call regulations. Yeah. We heard about this in the cash, cash ban, ban yeah. where we wanted the we wanted the legislation to be more clear, and if you push for that, they will say the the people in charge of that legislation will come back and say, "Oh no, that's made clear in the regulation, mm. which is an adjunct to the legislation, but it doesn't have the power of legislation." And which the minister can change. It's it's up to the minister. Oh, on, on his own bat. That's right. Um, the other things that um, have also been used more and more recently is the deferring of sunset dates. So where a legislation has a sunset clause and it's meant to automatically expire at a certain date, they push it back. So that's been happening more and more often. And the other thing is so-called Henry VIII clauses, which enables delegated legislation, which is the legislation just passed by the minister on his own bat, um, it allows that delegated legislation to make amendments to primary legislation. So that delegated legislation makes you know them then go back through the books and say, oh, we make these number of changes to the primary legislation again without a vote. So this is quite extraordinary stuff. And uh, one of the things noted in this inquiry on this matter was the link between um, growing socioeconomic inequality and declining trust in government. But I'm mm -hmm. going to come back to that later um, when we talk about the economic factor yeah. in this breakdown of the ability of the people to participate in governing in governing but now i want to talk about three interrelated things which um, bring morrison into this picture one is the consolidation and shake-up of government departments the second is the construction of bureaucratic power blocks and third is the destruction of the agencies of government meaning public service including the outsourcing of the public service uh, and departmental staff being outsourced. And I want to refer to an article, and we'll put up an image of this, because this was um, you know, a fairly prominent article at the time, and it's, we've referred to it in the past because it's got a number of significant points in it, uh, called Network of Influence. The Prime Minister has assembled a team to drain the swamp in his way. And interestingly enough, this was also written by Simon Benson, who 
put together this book. Wrote the book that the, these revelations have come out of you. And who we might add sat on yeah. this knowledge for who knows how many months. All right, editorial comment on that. <laughs> Just consider that this is, so everyone knows that this has been a massive story this week, the revelation that Scott Morrison had all these powers. So by any definition, it's a massive story. The journalists who broke it, broke it in a book, and they've known about it for more than a year, right? They sat on it until they could use it to sell their book. And I've seen, that, I've seen experienced journalists saying, if I was their boss in the newsroom, I'd sack them, right? Come on, your job is to supposed to be sniff out stories and break the news. It actually shows you how journalism has been corrupted in Australia. They're part of the cover-ups of these things. They're part of the, yeah, it's coming out now, but they do it in their way when it's convenient um, to them. Why is it the Prime Minister, they got it, how do they know? Scott Morrison told them a year ago. Why is it the Prime Minister of Australia told these journalists yeah. and didn't tell his own colleagues? Yep. Right? Like the, 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 the role of the media, don't trust the word they and, say. And listen to what Benson and his co-writer Jeff Chambers went through in this article because it shows that Morrison had this agenda in mind. Um, he planned to restructure government departments and rebuild the entire structures of governance around his networks of friends and collaborators. The article says... This is from the 6th of December 2019. Scott Morrison is building a new power block around his leadership, dismantling the old Canberra club with a network of friends, confidants, bureaucrats and trusted allies tasked with reshape, reshaping Australia's political, cultural and policy direction. The shake-up marks a generational shift in the power base of the mandarins and political class who have ruled over economic, environmental and social policy, national security and the role of business in government decision-making. And he talks about the hard-nosed clique of reformers that um, Morrison put together, uh, together with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet head Phil Gaitjens, Home Affairs Secretary Michael Pizzullo, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy and Cabinet Secretary Andrew Shearer, who Morrison had brought back from Washington for the job. Uh, and there were others that were involved in that, including cabinet members, political advisors, private secretaries, diplomats, intelligence chiefs, business community, and you know, no, no doubt the media. When you look at the role that people like Benson has played as a having the ear of yeah. the prime minister, um, but they axed the, the Morrison government when he came in. Axed four departments, sacked department heads, established new super departments like Home Affairs. They purged the public service. Um, Morrison moved to reshape Australia's national security architecture led by Mike Pizzullo, who claimed not to know about yeah. these ministry decisions, which I'd find hard to believe. He's a pretty sinister character, frankly. Yep. Uh, and they did the same with finance. That was another big target. And remember at the time during the pandemic too, there was all this discussion about how the banks had to have minute-to-minute -minute information on bank accounts because of these dangers and so forth. So there was a a lot of shifts shifting um, around that going on as well. Which brings me to discussing the other point um, in this matter of the institutions by which people can participate in government having been eroded that brought us to this point. And that's the neoliberal destruction of the economy. Because when you look at what we've documented in our Australian Alert Service in recent years, and you see from, for example, the point of the Wallace Commission, which... Um, not, and that eliminated a number of crucial government regulations and controls over the economy. It took government out of control over banking, for instance, and then numerous other royal commissions, commissions of audit, budget reviews, changes to the Reserve Bank mandate, um, which basically put the market and the private sector in control of the economy, which in parentheses, is something Mussolini's well known for. Uh, <laughs> um, and also led in large part to the disillusionment, as I mentioned earlier, of the population. Because, you know, when people don't have the basic economic basis, um, you know, to, to live day to day, yeah, yeah. they're less likely to be engaged in the process of governing and in politics. And they become... Um, very enraged at government. Yep. So you tend to get a dynamic where, um, again, as in Mussolini's time, um, you get a, lot, a big protest movement, which is, is not so much engaged in policy ideas as in just you know, pure rage, which becomes hard to control and which then 
can lead to fascist crackdowns. Well, that's and that's why we we reported this our initial impressions of what this scandal was at the time on the lead of the uh, uh, alert service this week in that way, Elisa, because what neoliberal like a, a really simpler simple way to express what neoliberalism means is um, the government shouldn't be involved in the economy, right? And and the impulse behind it wasn't an honest one. It was government is getting in the way of the control of the economy by big business, by big banks. We've got to get, so they demonise government and they suck the general population into things like I remember you know in the eighties um, it's the the lolly, you know the, the, the lazy council lollipop guy who's you know paid all this money just to hold a sign up all day or the I mean, the Telstra. The, tel the telecom worker, you know, oh, what a cushy job the telecom, all these government jobs, saying, I'm working really hard, look what these guys, they, they, they get paid for doing nothing. And so in, in the public's mind, they're, they're being brought into this demonisation of government. And under that became, create, helped create the pretext where the people with an agenda moved in and smashed government. Mm. And what they did is dismantled the ability of the government to serve us. If the issue was if the issue was what's the government doing, it's up to the people to make sure it's doing the right thing. Um, they 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 cynically harness the people's opposition to destroy the ability of the government to serve us. And then, at first, people um, you know aren't seeing the consequences. But thirty years later, the consequences are absolutely everywhere. Mm. So what happens in those circumstances where you, you then I'll give you one. I was having a discussion with with um, someone on, on this yesterday. What, to just take one sociological phenomenon, which is the destruction of manufacturing in Australia. Back in the day when the majority, when the single biggest sector of the Australian economy was manufacturing, um, most, more workers than any other, and, and agriculture is the same, but workers who are involved in productive industries, they are participating in a, an economic system where they're making a contribution every day. They're involved in processes which are scientific. Production processes are scientific. They see how what they're doing is contributing to the way the economy and the nation works, right? And then over the course of a few decades, it's taken away from everybody. And you're either unemployed or you have a job in services. And your services are not scientific at all. In fact, they become less scientific. The more you can spruik yourself and make all sorts of claims about yourself, the more likely you're going to have a services job, right? Um, so people get dis disconnected from the process of the economy. Um, then they, what you were saying earlier... They're, they're, they feel increasingly powerless. Mm. They're at the mercy of decisions made by politicians instead of being feeling themselves that, they, that, that they're in control of their own destiny, right? They know that the decisions made by politicians are absolutely awesome, like, the, like in terms of all um, terrifying. Mm. You know, they can have far-reaching uh, consequences. The powerlessness makes them feel enraged. The politicians get that. And what do they do? Well... What decent politicians would do is say, which is the whole reason our party exists, we must change the system back to serve the people. Mm. What these thugs do is say, our power comes first. We must preserve our power at all costs. Therefore, we must grab more and more and more of it to do that. Right? We must take control of everything to do that. Not to serve the people. If you, want to, if you ever want to placate the people... Deliver for them. Mm. But no, no. If, I, if we, the government, is going to keep serving the banks and delivering for them so they can keep mass, making their massive profits, etc., we need more power. And this seems to be exactly what was driving Morrison in this massive power grab. He's distrusting his own ministers that they're going to do the job right. He thinks, I must have this power because these people are going to stuff it up and make tr trouble for me. Right, I'm going to be this secret presence in all these things to make it happen, and it is Mussolini mm. all over again with the same motive because he represented the interests of corporations. Yeah. Now, when Mussolini first came into Parliament, was elected into Parliament, he was very quickly um, ushered into a coalition with the governing Liberal Party, the Conservative uh, Italian Liberal Party, and um, he continued to enjoy the support of the Liberal Party even once he was, uh, after the March on Rome, was declared dictator. Before you go on, just for the historical record, which is now completely established, you can look it up online, the way he came to power included being on the payroll, an Italian Prime Minister on the payroll of British intelligence, MI5. They paid him, he was their agent, and they made sure he came to power because there was a, a larger geopolitical agenda here. 
But go on. But yeah, once he was the became the leader in his own right, as I said, he still enjoyed the support of the Liberal Party, and in fact, a number of key Liberal economists, very well-known Italian Liberal economists, um, who followed British economic policy models. Uh, continued to write his policies for a very long time and he appointed himself to at least 10 different ministries to head those ministries at different times. Um, He played a key role, as we've seen from what I went just through, in terms of consolidating and eliminating ministries, concentrating power, sacking countless numbers of public services, outsourcing government capabilities, privatising, of course, everything, including infrastructure, abolishing public institutions, all of the ways that the people could interface um, legitimately with government. Uh, and at a certain point, because this was, a, again, an evolution, it, didn't, it wasn't just full fascism straight away, but full fascism came into effect, um, really was induced by the gravity of the economic crisis. And yeah. so what I would say is that Um, You know, we didn't have Morrison actually use these powers. He was ousted. We still have um, the basic abilities to, you know, have government of and by the for the people in existence right now. But we are heading for a grave and harsh economic crisis in which these things are great, great threats. And so, you know... In the context of of that, if he was still in power now... If he was still in power now, we wouldn't know any of this. Mm, No doubt. He would have these powers. We wouldn't know them. And if there was the combination of economic crisis and war, he would be able to move like that and use them, right, for whatever purpose that um, he and his backers wanted to use them for. And so now we know about them. We have to make sure that we are saying, how do you actually address the problem? Um, And solve the economic crisis, which is where our... Well, Public of, banking policies are crucial. So let's end on that because it's just, yeah. just, just quickly, what are we doing by pushing a postal bank? We're saying the government must get back involved in the economy at the top end where the real power is, the money power. What banks have, the power banks have is the real power. They want an exclusive monopoly over it so they can just use it to loot us to death. If the government gets its own bank back, it can show the public what a bank, how a bank like the Commonwealth Bank did, how a bank can be used for the common good. And that's how you bring back government as an entity that people can trust again, right? And control again, government of, by and for the people. That's what that means. It's no mistake that the, pro, the, the US president who said those words was, there was a, you, there's, you should do a history lesson one day, there was a handful of American presidents that were real champions of national banking, the government being involved in banking. Um, uh, Lincoln was one of the greatest of them. And that's what it means. We, and our postal bank is a way, it's not just a quaint little idea, it's a way we can do that. And on that note, Elise, I forgot to mention something earlier, if I can just, um, on the postal bank campaign. We put out a release this week about uh, cashless bank branches. And we put out a call, this is very important, if you know about cashless bank branches in your area, we need you to notify us for this reason. If it's cashless, it's not a bank branch. This is there's a definition of bank branches that APRA has to enforce, and they're not in do, they're not doing it. The banks are hiding their shutdown of branches by doing this way. So if there's a tell if it's called a tellerless bank or a cashless bank or a bank where you can go into your banking, but when when it comes to handing over cash, they say you've got to use the ATM. That is not a bank branch. We want everybody who knows of the existence of these things contact the Citizens Party on info at citizensparty.org.au or um, our toll-free number, 1-800-636-432. Tell us what the address is and um, what bank it is, right? So that we can compile this list because we're going to be raising this in Parliament. It's all part of holding the government to account, the public holding the government to account, which you know we, we spearhead a lot, but also um, building the case for a postal bank because a postal bank will make sure that um, we, we, make, we do proper full banking services in every community. Yep, so please contact us about that. Now, on to our second topic. Taxpayer-funded warmongers hide from scrutiny. And you're in the middle of this story, Robbie, but just uh, to right. preface it, last week on the show you reported at length on the press conference held by the Chinese ambassador uh, and the reaction to that 
uh, with the press pack absolutely piling on, and there were a number. There've been a number of um, key former diplomats who built the China Australia-China relationship that have shown their deep concern about what went on there. Stephen Fitzgerald, who was our first ambassador, said that you can speculate they'd already pre-written the headlines. And we've since had ex-diplomat to China and Hong Kong, Jocelyn Che, who came out saying it was apparent they had come up with prepared questions and were trying to engineer a quote for a headline news item. And the bottom line of all that is what the media did that day is show that they have an agenda, which is if there's any chance to reset Australia's relationship with China, to take the heat out of it, they're there to stop that. Mm. And of course, we're warning against the danger of war, um, you know, potentially world war. You've had um, warnings of even nuclear war from the UN's head Guterres. You had this week Swiss finance minister and former defence minister Uli Mora saying it can't be ruled out that in a few weeks there will be a nuclear war in Europe. Um, I'll put up a headline, Britain should prepare for a nuclear war. Um, last week on the show, we played Scott Ritter warning, you know, Americans will die in this, which brings me to the interview you did with John Lander, who um, wanted to discuss that point because for Australia, the threat is quite different. He made very clear in his interview, which you can watch on our YouTube channel, it should be the, the item below this one if you're watching it on YouTube, that the US has no intention to go to war with China. They know what that would mean, as Scott Ritter pointed out, as others have warned with the threat of global thermonuclear war. What they will do is keep their distance by having a proxy war where Taiwan and Australia China. will be on the front lines. And the intention is uh, to use such a proxy war to weaken China, just like they're trying to weaken Russia. And I, and I said to John, we're talking... Out- the, the way our politicians are acting, they're talking us into being this proxy role. And John said they're not just talking us, they are moving in that direction. That's what interoperability and interchangeability with our military actually means. So they will, the, the Americans will happily keep arming us while we're, you know, bearing our chest and running into the machine guns equivalent of what we did at Gallipoli, right? Just sacrificing yourself for an imperial agenda. Um, because unfortunately, Australians can be induced into thinking that way, and and the Americans say, "Well, got your back, mate," but they will make mm. sure they're out out of the firing line. The Chinese will never attack them because China doesn't want a nuclear war. China doesn't want any war, but it has a red line, and it's going to stick with that red line um, on Taiwan. And this is, you know, John's warning is really, really stark. Mm. And he's a, I can't emphasise how much of an expert he is. He's the clearest strategic thinker in Australia today. You've got to watch that interview and share it and mm. send that to your local politicians. Absolutely, because our politicians, we all know, anyone that's met with a politician knows they don't have time to even read the legislation they're voting yep. on, let alone do research on such a matter of consequence. So where are they getting their advice from? The Australian Strategic Policy Institute is one of the key outfits and that's what we want to talk about today because um, they've been out muddying the waters, uh, in particular on the Xinjiang question, the question of supposed or what they claim to be forced labour uh, happening in China. Um, and this is ahead of a report that's due to come out, I think, at the end of the month yeah. uh, by Michelle Bachelet, the former president of Chile and current UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, who made a trip there in May. And it's the first time in 17 years uh, the UN Human Rights Commission has been there in China to check out these claims. Um, and we'll just play a little bit of what she said, and then I'll let you comment on that. Yeah. I encourage the government to undertake a review of all counterterrorism and deradicalization policies to ensure they fully comply with international human rights standards and in particular that they are not applied in an arbitrary and discriminatory way. All right. Now, that's a that's an, an innocuous statement, but this is what she's talking about, but she she um she described what's happening in Xinjiang in terms of counterterrorism and de-radicalisation. And she said, I, I you know, caution the Chinese government, you make sure that you follow the rules when it comes to these things. So this week, I and Richard Barden, who was my co-host last week, went along to um, a, an event at La Trobe University, La Trobe Asia, in the CBD in Melbourne here, because um, they had a panel of people from Human Rights Watch, which is an, an American-funded fake human rights organisation, uh, and some, a, a La Trobe University professor 
uh, and a person who formerly worked at Aspie, Vicky Shu, who is a co-author of a report that Aspie wrote in 2020 called Uyghurs for Sale. And we went along there because I wanted to ask questions about that report. That report came out in the middle of the pandemic. There hasn't been public fora to have engagement on this, right? So this was the, f this was the first ex real opportunity that, that one of the co-authors of the report could be um, questioned. And I, I've got to give a little bit of background to that. But before we get on to Vicky Shu, the, the Human Rights Watch representative in that, on that panel attacked Michelle Bachelet for the words that you just, the viewers just saw her say. And she attacked her because by calling it counter-terrorism, Michelle Bachelet was accepting that China is responding to a terrorism problem. And the American and British funded human rights mafia who are using human rights to attack China and demonise it as the most evil country in the world, as per the prescription in a memo, a notorious memo that the State Department wrote for Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State in 2017, because he was a business guy that Trump appointed Secretary of State. And so the memo wrote, a, the department wrote a memo for him on human rights and said, human rights is something we use against our adversaries, never against our allies. <laughs> right? So they don't care about human rights at all. And that Human Rights Watch representative was attacking Michelle Bachelet for acknowledging that China was trying to solve a terrorism problem. And you have no idea how bad that terrorism problem was. We've done shows on in this, on, on, on this program. Um, but just to suffice, in the same, roughly the same period as France suffered its horrific wave of ISIS-related terrorism, China suffered a worse wave of terrorism. So in that same period, we were putting the French colours up on the you know, opera house every few months, right? China, in the space of a decade, had 800 people killed in terrorist attacks by this ISIS-related organisation called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement or the Turkestan Islamic Party. And the human rights mafia want to pretend mm. that never happened and it's not an issue. And I want you to think about that because if, if just say you don't, you know, you're the viewer and you think, you know, the Citizens Party is talking about China again. Don't they know how bad China is? If you must at least agree that if we cannot, when we're dealing with a country like China, acknowledge even basic facts that relate to their humanity and natural reactions to things, that mm. they've suffered an awful wave of terrorism, they've got to do something. Well, look at what the US did after 9-11. They set state. up Guantanamo Bay, <laughs> right? They invaded two countries. Um, and killed a bunch of people. Surveillance state Mass set surveillance, up. yep. The home, what is it called? The, the home, homeland. Home. Or whatever. Home. <laughs> what was the department? I don't know. <laughs> homeland Security. Right, Department of Homeland Security. Um, thanks, producer. <laughs> uh, like, that's, that's what we did. This was a serious problem China had to solve, right? And this Human Rights Watch Mafia just doesn't want to acknowledge that at all. That, I can tell you now, is evil because that will make sure you always end in war. If you cannot talk to your the person on the other side of the table for you and, and, and have any sense of why the, what their motivations are, then that's that's a recipe for disaster. So I wanted to say that, but it, but now we're going to play a bit another video um, of what actually happened on the evening because what happened was not the intention. So Richard and I went along to ask Vicky Shu um, these questions, some questions about her report. The reason it's filmed is because the question you see me ask is specific and I wanted her answer to that because I wanted to see if she's prepared to take credit for the consequences of the report that she wrote because that could have legal implications if she was prepared to do that, right? Um, but first, there's a little bit of background to this. I had met Vicky Shu before under somewhat strange circumstances. It was last year, I was flying back from Canberra um, and she was on my plane with me. And I recognised her. She'd had, at the time, she had this um, shaved head, etc. And she was coming down to be on Q&A. And I knew her because I knew she'd written this report. And I knew her from Aspie. And I knew her because Four Corners had done stories on her. This, this is a woman who was a comedian, a Chinese-Australian comedian, right? Gets up there on stage and is as sassy as anything like comedians are. Exhibits no sense of, of, um, of being a shrinking violet, right? Right? Uh, you know, she she seems as as game as anybody. She she she, she does a whole. There's a whole story like you can watch her on on uh, Four Corners on that. Um, but then she gets this job with Aspie, 
as an author of a report like this, which has had consequences. Uyghurs have lost their jobs because of this Aspie report, right? That's what we wanted her to acknowledge and take credit for if she, if she chose to. Um, so when I was on the plane, I'm thinking, I, you know, when I, when I see someone in the airport I recognise, I like to go and take an opportunity to introduce myself. In this particular case, um, we're allowed to swear on this show, aren't we? Ben, ben, I had had a, a Twitter altercation with her a year earlier where I had, I had taken exception to something that she'd said and I sort of um, I pointed out that the language she chose to use on a personal issue, which was she was complaining about her boyfriend, not, her ex-boyfriend not returning her, um, her, her um, stuff, and she used extreme language, and I said, this is the kind of language they use for Xinjiang. I mean, they're, they're kind of making light of, the, of the, the, these claims that they're making, aren't they? And she replied to me, so that's a paraphrase of what I said on Twitter, and she replied to me, um, do a course in humour, you stupid old bald or fat bald <laughs> Right, so sorry about the language, that can be beeped out. Um, uh, so because of that altercation, I thought, you know, you know, um, I would like to introduce myself, so she, so she, um, so she meets me. But then, you know, you got you're concerned about what that might mean, right? I didn't want to be, um, I did not want in any way to to be seen to be someone who's confrontational at all, right? And I don't operate that way. I'm confrontational on this show, but I'm not going to be some, I'm, you know, there's there's no overtones of anything, and I'm I'm very careful about that. Um, so I had texted someone saying, I, I mentioned Vicky Shute, who, who also knew of Vicky Shute. I said, she's on the plane, should I, should I say something? And um, he said, no, this person advised me, a Chinese person actually advised me, no, she'll turn it into something against you. Anyway, so I, when we got off the plane, you get, you know, you're, you're leaving the plane, you get off at your own speed. Um, and I, I gave up on the idea, I wasn't going to talk to her. However, I then lined up for a cab. And at the Melbourne airport, it was the middle of the day, I was the only person lined up for the cab. And you've got to wait, for, once you line up, then they call the cabs down. And I'm waiting, and this other person comes and stands next to me, literally right next to me. And who is it? It's Vicky Shu. And we're both waiting there, quietly, for a cab. And I thought, well, I am going to say something. So I said to her, um, hi, I'm Robert Bowie. Do you remember me? You called me a stupid old... And I'm, I'm not standing, I'm, I'm standing three metres away, right? You called me that. And she goes, oh, oh. And I said, look, I'm sorry for what has been happening to you because she claimed that she's been trolled on social media, et cetera. And, you know, and um, I didn't want her to, to, to um, uh, you know, no one should, should be persecuted. So I, I said, I'm sorry for what's happened to you. I said, but do you understand why people like me do what we do? We don't want war with China. And she said, I'm already at war with China. I said, no, no, a real war with China. Shooting war. Yeah, that's what I meant. And she said, I'm in a real war with China. And I realised, well, I said, okay, well, good luck tonight on Q&A, right? And our, t our cabs had come by that time and left. That's what happened. That was our, my altercation with her last year, right? Just that. I tweeted about it at the time and said this, this, this dialogue about war with China, right? Because I said, I, and I, I finished that tweet saying, Aspie has a lot to answer from for, in my humble opinion, i.e., that they've got someone like Vicky Shu in this frame of mind that she thinks she's at war with China. Um, and that's all it was. So then this time, though, I went along to a public meeting knowing she was there, not having anything in my mind about that event because she wrote a report that's had consequences and I wanted to ask her a question. So we'll run the tape. This just goes for two and a half minutes so people can see what happened. From the Citizen Party, I've got two questions for Vicky. Um, the first is on the effectiveness of your weakness for sale report. Can you identify manufacturing companies that have stopped using weaker labour because of your report? Maybe the speaker goes up to the First of all, I would like to point out that. Um, uh, Last year, during one of my trips to Melbourne to record um, q and I uh, ran into Robert at the airport, um, and uh, I, in my opinion, I was ambushed, um, and he misrepresented um, our exchange on Twitter, um, and he accused me of uh, 
wanting war with China. So uh, I do not consider Robert to be here in good faith, and I refuse to answer his questions. I'll give me a break. I did not read the tweet. Read, excuse me. Read the tweet. I did not accuse you of that. I, did, I reported. I said I don't want war with China. I just required quote you saying I'm at war with China. I did not quote you saying anything else. You can see the tweet online. Anyway, let's let's. No, no, no. I asked a question. I'd like an answer. Instead, I got that's the answer. Sorry, it's not the answer. Please, please sit down or leave. You speak. It is sensitive. For those who are interested, I've brought along 10 copies of Jacqueline James' legal analysis of the Weaver's Star report. And if you're interested, she debunks it completely and thoroughly. You're an apologist for genocide. I am not an apologist for genocide. This is a joke. Raising the living standards of people is not. Excuse me? Sit down. No, I'm not going to sit down. Sit down. I've been attacked. Excuse me. Anyway, you can't your name. Please either sit down or we'll have to leave the room. You've had your moment, and Jack has heard one on Monday in Canberra, and he's been heard, and we'd like to ask you well, to leave, please. Well, I'd like, no, no, we'd like a response. You, you, you are troublemaking in international affairs. I'll point out that Everything. Robert, you have potentially stalked me before, and... Excuse I'd like to ask you to leave, please. We'll for, the record, for the record, I was at the taxi rank next to Vicky at Melbourne Airport. I didn't stalk her, I didn't follow her, I recognised her and I asked her a question. And I'm running to you again here today with taxi. I have come to ask you this question, Vicky. Yeah, well, we have other questions. That's not stalking, this is a public event. And I refuse to answer your questions because I do not consider them to be a good thing. Please leave. And I did not leave. Please, before I leave, before I leave, would anyone like a copy of this report? Please leave. Don't you have a copy of this report? Please read it. Please. 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 I just want to make two points about that, what people just said. I did not go along to be disruptive like that. that. Like that became a massive disruption. That was not the intention. I've disrupted meetings before, as you know, right? There's, there's been times in our political career when you go, okay, I'm going to go and disrupt a certain meeting. That was not that. In, I wanted that. In, that um, the uh, answer the, on the record. Question, the mm. answer on record. That's why it was being filmed. Thank God it was being filmed because it became that. And it became that because by attacking me like she did, I felt I had to answer to defend my, here's me, a, a large, bald guy in an overcoat at the back of the room, and this, this young uh, Chinese lady is saying, you know, he, he ambushed me, he stalked me, and I knew the truth of it, so I, had, I felt I had to answer that, and it became more of a um, disruption. But the bottom line was, I had done nothing, um, uh, I had done nothing to, uh, at, on, uh, on that night to give her an excuse not to answer the question. She did not want to answer that question. Mm. And there was only one really? person in that whole room, the man yelling, this is censorship, who was not part of an echo chamber there to just accept Aspie's claims without question and not push, push back. And every time you try and deal with these people, Lisa, they block you. you know, if, you, if they make claims on Twitter, you respond to them, they instantly block you, right? And they do not want public engagement. Mm. And the woman I cited, Jacqueline James, who wrote the report debunking that, she had gone to Aspie in Canberra on the Monday night, two nights earlier, to ask the same question and had a similar um, response from the, from the panel. In fact, um, uh, we might be able to play a little clip of that uh, as well because uh, there, is, there is some video. You can hear, you can hear Jack talking. Hey, Yacho. Um, I just want to refer to your statement on Twitter on the 27th of January. Human rights in China is already so bad that it warrants our uttermost outrage over the CCP anyway. There is really no need to exaggerate. Inaccuracy ultimately damages the cause. Now, I just want to say I agree with that. I agree that we shouldn't exaggerate, and I agree that we shouldn't damage the human rights cause through inaccuracy. Now, as a private citizen, I've done a legal analysis, an objective legal analysis, of the Aspie Uyghurs for Sales report. Measured against law and evidence, I've found all sorts of horrible problems with it. There's falsehoods, there's exaggerations, there's misrepresentations. But the most controversial one, the most stark one, is this high school is represented as a concentration camp in Xinjiang, siphoning off 
forced legal labor. I've got photos of girls, of graduates, who are clearly going off to work as consensual workers. Now, you are sitting right next to the man who can change the report and make one part of it accurate to remove that high school and stop pretending that it is a concentration camp in Xinjiang. What are you going to do about it? Sorry, before I do that, um, as per the agreement, so would you mind identifying yourself? I'm sorry, Jack. Oh, sorry, I didn't hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think, you know, you can disagree with SP report, you can disagree with human rights reports, you know, but they're, they're the victims who are speaking up, you know. I'm speaking of victims too. Consensual workers have Jack, to work. Jack, gave you the courtesy of uh, listening to your entire question. Let's allow her to respond. It's the people who fled the camps who are speaking up. It's the people whose, you know, whose father and mother who are in the camp speaking up. It's the people whose cousins, sisters, brothers, they haven't heard for five years speaking up. It's the parents whose children in those boarding schools they haven't seen for five years have no idea where they are speaking up. People are identify their children in propaganda videos question about this report. Why don't you answer the question? Jack, allow Yapcho to finish no, her. No. I don't want to hear your answer if you're not going to actually answer my question. I'm not giving well, then you another we'll, uh, platform. As the moderator, I'll move on. But I will say that what you said at the beginning is important, that everyone needs to be held accountable and ASPE needs to be held accountable as well. So uh, whether it be citizens like you, Jack, uh, or others, very, very happy to take uh, concerns uh, areas of di disagreement and difference, uh, we need to be held ac accountable just as we hold governments and businesses to account as well. This is a story that I collected from a reference in the Weavis for Sale report, but the, the story was excluded from the ASPE report. Uh, thank you very much. It's a story of a Xinjiang Muslim child bride called Ms. Bahal Guri. She was pulled out of school by her parents and married off at the age of 15 to a 55-year-old wild imam to become a seventh wife. The husband would punch and kick her, not let her go to hospital, hospital because it was not halal, force her to cover her face and indoctrinate her with extremist ideas, which included viewing women as appendages of men. Whereas Human Rights Watch and whereas ASPE to protect this woman's uh, human rights, Social rights, economic rights, all of her rights. Where are you? I'm hearing silence. Can I just take that one? Um, since I personally worked on that report. Um, the thing with Xinjiang is that what that source is, is probably a government-backed uh, state media outlet. And what they have been doing for a decade now, decades now is just um, kind of hyping up these these stories about uh, Muslims in the regions uh, in the region being backwards um, and mistreating women, and I'm not saying this is fake. Don't put words in my mouth, please. Jack, um, Jack again, Daria gave you the very very strong courtesy of allowing you to ask the question. I've actually extended time to allow you to ask the question, allow her to answer, and we can talk about it offline as well. So. It is, it is difficult to verify. If you can verify that claim, I would be very happy to read it. But, uh, you know, it is not um, what we were reporting on at the time. Plus, it was not verifiable, so we did not include it in our report. When you come back with something that is verifiable, we will more than happily, you know, check it. And we have rectified our report before, we're not scared of doing so, we're not scared of letting you talk right now. And she got pretty much the same, they just were not interested in engaging mm. at all, um, and that's what you're dealing with. And these guys are clearly not used to being accountable, no. you know, even though they get funding from the Defence Department, they're not the ones on the chair in Senate Estimates. No. To answer to these kind of questions yeah, that are determining tax... our policy. Exactly, they, they are unaccountable. They're funded by the taxpayer. They have put out more diatribe. This organisation, ASPE, is quoted worldwide. Mm. Every time it says something about China, nationally Gospel. coordinated headlines worldwide. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute says 
Chinese people eat babies, mm. right? Oh yeah, it must be true. Let's do a let's do a tribunal on the Chinese people eating babies. That sort of that sort of garbage is what they is what they produce, and it's not accountable. So only a few people are prepared to take them on. Mm. We we do. Uh, Jacqueline James tried to, and you saw the uh, consequences. And look. Just as a final comment, and you might have others, but um, our place to stand as a nation to claim China is some, you know, autarkic, oh. dictatorial yeah. <laughs> power that's not a democracy. Our place to stand to claim that is growing increasingly thin. We're on this little ledge, if you yeah, like, after yeah. what we've just gone through with what Morrison did, which is part of a whole progression. So, 100% agree. So I won't add to that. I'll just remind people... Yep. What I said earlier about the postal bank and the cashless branches, please let us know mm. if you know one a cashless branch. And don't forget to contact us because all the information is backed up in the alert service. You can get a free copy if you haven't already or subscribe and support us. Contact us to find out more. That's the show for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.